night I began to explain the Noble Eightfold Path, which is um, like a very um, telegram-style version of the whole directive how to practice. And we have already discussed a number of those steps told you about the supreme effort which is right effort which goes together with right mindfulness and right concentration as the concentration part of the path right concentration sama samadhi always means the meditative absorption it can never mean anything else the word samadhi is totally indicative of what it means and right effort is most often concerned with those four supreme efforts that I have explained and right mindfulness of course means that all four foundations are being practiced well, all the time and whatever one whenever one doesn't practice it the mindfulness has slipped so we have four foundations of mindfulness which we have already discussed we have four supreme efforts and we have four meditative absorptions we have discussed all those question is whether we've done them but we've certainly discussed them and if we haven't done them we can always start doing them any one of them will be fine, doesn't matter eventually maybe all four now the first part of the Noble Eightfold Path concerns the inside part right view samaditi and with the words there some are always meaning right the word ditti as I've already mentioned means view and always means wrong it doesn't just mean view if it's right view it has to have the word right in front and I mentioned already that the Buddha gave a discourse the first one of the long discourses in which he enumerated 62 views all of them wrong (coughs) that's supposed to put a real full stop on that all of them wrong because they're all based on I think, I know, I believe, I understand and nobody knows who I really is one has this very interesting idea that there is an I and me but nobody knows exactly who that is it's very difficult to explain who that I is and this is one of the things that one should actually try and do explain to oneself who is this I 
the one I'm calling I use it so it's got a name might not even be the same one that one started out with could be the same one very often it isn't the same one might have changed in the course of this life and then one has a certain age well that's a certainly changed all the time and then one has a certain body well that has certainly changed all the time and then one has a certain mind where there's feeling and there's this thinking process and uh, that has certainly changed from each moment to the next and then one has certain belongings well they've all changed and then there are certain people that we call mine my husband, my wife, my daughter, my son, my mother, my father and uh, numbers of them might not even be around anymore we could maybe call them my skeleton it's possible that meanwhile they have turned into a skeleton <laughs> well we forget all that we don't think, we don't look we are, we are not uh, interested to find out the truth most of the time we try to find uh, comfort within the lack of truth in which we live so because of all this there are all these viewpoints that we have and this list of 62 uh, is supposed to be like an overall list under which all the other views that one has can be integrated and they're all wrong so the word ditty always means wrong view so then we have the opportunity to gain right view and our right view is the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path which is a very interesting fact because when one starts practicing one certainly hasn't got right view if one ever gets it so there is again that circular movement one has to have a little bit of right view in order to start practicing now some people of course start practicing because they've got so much dukkha they haven't got, can't find anything else to do anymore which is alright, it doesn't matter some people start practicing because somebody else is doing it and some people start practicing actually accidentally but then there are quite a number of people of course who start practicing because right view has arisen that one needs to do something other than just chasing after material things that's a good view, that's the right view so that's the beginning then one also needs another right view in order to get started and that right view has to concern the fact that what one thinks, says and does is going to have a result it can't just go on without any resultant there is, there is cause and there is effect now that also is necessary for the start of the practice because if one doesn't have that kind of understanding then of course there isn't any impetus behind the practice now I see it, now I don't now I do it, now I don't it doesn't really matter although one has the intelligence to know that there is something that needs to be done other than material things something that has 
connection to one's spiritual life, the cause and effect is completely forgotten and therefore the practice is um, just not, not constant and um, very much a matter of chance. And if one gets this cause and effect a little clearer in one's mind, then one will watch for that. One will see the effect, or try to see it anyway. Try to see whether there are any effects of practice. Now, one can't see them maybe so clearly every single day, but one can look back after maybe six months or a year and see some effects. And particularly, one can see it if somebody else has any reaction to the practice. But cause and effect not only concerns practice, concerns everything one does. So if we have that a little clearer in the mind, then we'll be a little more careful and we'll actually do something about the purification system which we have already discussed. So these are the first two steps of right view which are necessary to start any kind of spiritual path, no matter what. That there is more to it than just, more to life than just materiality, matter, and that all causes are going to have some effects. Most of them have immediate effects. And the more one practices, the more one notices them. And then one starts doing what the Buddha has prescribed so that eventually one day right view has a different connotation because right view as a beginning is also the end of the practice so it's a totally circular movement we got to have some right view to get started but what we are doing is supposed to take us to absolutely right view. So as that, we naturally have to go through different steps and stages. There have been stories and cases of spontaneous enlightenment. They're very rare and uh, very few and far between. And one would imagine that those people were on a spiritual level where this last step was all that needed to be done. The ordinary mass of people to whom the Buddha talked, who were just like us, needed to do everything step by step. And that's exactly what we need to do, step by step. And we can't ever leave one out. Whether we know it or not, it doesn't really matter whether we know these things or not. It happens anyway. If we do know them, it makes it much easier because we know what to do. Now, obviously, with the meditative absorptions, I've already explained step by step from one to four. There are more, and I'll explain those also at another time. Well, with right view, it's also step by step. And we can divide them up 
into 7, into 9, into 13, it doesn't really matter. Whichever way the bookkeeping is going at the time. What has to be done step by step. And the right view can be described on each level, on any of those 7, 9, or 13, as, in the words of the Buddha, knowledge and vision of the way things really are. Now, knowledge is what I'm saying, I'm imparting, and if you remember it, it's going to be your own knowledge. If it stays on the little notebook, it's only information. It's not knowledge. There's a lot of difference between information and knowledge. Knowledge one's got to remember. But that's still not vision of the way things really are. Vision is that inner experience which transforms one. It transforms because the inner experience has changed the psyche. So the first thing is information, and that's what you're getting. That's all that can, anybody can get. The remembering is up to each person to make it knowledge. And then, of course, the vision, well, of course one has to do that oneself. And one has to do it in a way which comes about through one mental factor only, pinpointed attention, mindfulness. There is no substitute. It's the only one that we can use. Obviously, as we keep on practicing and meditating, that particular factor improves by itself. But if one doesn't practice, it doesn't. But if one keeps on meditating, regularly and practicing mindfulness outside of meditation this mental ability becomes better and better it's a skill like any other and everybody has the necessary qualifications for that skill in fact we all have the necessary qualifications for enlightenment each one of us if we don't use those qualifications, that's only because we get caught up in things which are totally immaterial. Everybody does. But the qualifications are there. We have the qualifications for getting rid of all dukkha by getting rid of self-illusion, not getting rid of something that's really there. So. Mindfulness is the one mental factor which helps us to understand each step. And some of these steps I have already mentioned, but I will reiterate them so that again they get into context and you can see, hopefully, the connection and you can see how it fits together and also the progression from one step to the next. The very first step of right view, which then means insight, 
Now the first two right views which I mentioned didn't mean insight yet. They are just the right way of looking at oneself. But now starts right view meaning insight. It's to understand quite clearly from one's own experience that the mind gives the orders and the body follows. Now we have of course autonomous physical actions where the mind doesn't have to particularly say anything and yet we can for instance with the breath we can stop it for a while hold the breath if we if the mind says so we can deep uh, breathe deeply if the mind says breathe deeply but ordinarily the body just breathes but the mind doesn't breathe it can't do it but it can certainly watch that and if we don't take that understanding and I mean it's a really basic understanding any kid can understand that that the mind watches and the body is breathing if we don't take that knowledge any further we haven't got an entry into insight that understanding and that can be called knowledge because that information obviously can be easily remembered so that knowledge of those two having separate actions which are often intertwined and entangled but are still two separate matters one is mind and one is matter nama rupa in Pali rupa is matter and nama is mind and the word nama is also the word nema the mind names things it's always on the verge of telling stories and very often long involved totally absurd stories so that's why it's called nama also nema Pali and Sanskrit are the uh, very often the underlying base of the languages which we speak we can find a lot of similarities so that's the first step of right view now view in this case is a very good word because it means how we view ourselves now obviously we constantly view ourselves as one solid lump sitting on this pillow or walking around or getting some food one solid thing called me but if we don't forget that there is mind and body we have at least started our way into the analysis and the detailed understanding of this lump that has so many bits and pieces which eventually will bring us to the understanding that there isn't one solid thing there now only when we see that of course do we have um, a vision an inner vision now vision in this case doesn't mean that we see pictures it means that we have an inner realization that's what it means it's just translated like that because it's um, well it could be translated differently too yata bhutanyana dasananyana it's an inner realization yana means realization actually so this is the first step number one now I would suggest to you two things first thing 
look at yourself out when you're sitting somewhere or in meditation, doesn't matter and try to find me really try to find the, the me which is such an important person in one's life is there anyone more important than me? it can only be me that's top priority and that has attachments around you know other people who are also important but if me wasn't there in the middle these other people wouldn't be important either so the first order of insight is to find this one the one that is the top person in one's life who is it what is it why do I call it me where can I find it what does it consist of? Any question you want to ask. And give that some time. Don't just answer, oh, well, the Buddha says there isn't anybody me, so that's all right. Because who is saying that? Me is saying that. It has no value. Me says, oh, yeah, Buddha said there's no me, it's okay. It doesn't help at all. It has to be a little more than that. That's one thing. And the second thing is actually become aware. And that question need not have an answer. It's just a question, where is this me? There, don't expect to get now this most profound answer for that. It's a, it has to just be a question. But the next thing, yes, now you've watched yourself as being mind and body. And that, of course, that is easily ascertained and see it as for what it is again don't say oh, yeah, right, well first step of insight of course I know that very simple mind body anybody knows that no that's not it at all that doesn't help it's not a mathematical equation that once having been solved we never have to look again we have to actually experience mind and body now, mind and body is very easily experienced, for instance, when you watch the breath or in walking meditation or in just walking or in going to the toilet. Maybe the mind says, I want to go to the toilet now. And then the mind says, no, I think I'm going to finish what I'm doing first. And then the thigh says, no, no, I'm just going to the toilet now. And then, no, I'm going to finish this first. So, are you going or aren't you going? the body wants to has this urge there's this urge which has translated to the mind that the mind says now come on get going but then the mind says not so important I'll do something else first and then there are two things happening they're totally intertwined because the body's um, sensations translate to the mind as something but that's all that's happening so one can use anything, it doesn't matter what it is. One can use the food, the eating, anything at all to see that there's mind and body. And to have seen that is an important step into insight which most people who do not study either psychology or the Buddha's teaching never even have any inkling that it's important they wouldn't even give it any thought and yet when you notice it yourself you will realize immediately why it's so important 
you will realize that the important lies in the fact, importance lies in the fact, that having seen that the mind is first in giving orders, that's what's got to be attended to. That the body is, of course, it needs all the things that it needs, but it hasn't got the real importance. You say, self will notice it. There is then no question, anybody who's ever seen that there are two knows that and will then again and again attend to the mind. And that gives the impetus for mindfulness and the impetus for practice. There has to be insight. If we don't have any insight at all, you know, we just have that understanding that I talked about that there is more, more to life than just um, materiality, it's not enough. There has to be insight, and that is the first step. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds simplistic. Well, maybe it is, and yet most people don't ever pay attention to it. The, uh, the Buddha's um, explanations and his teaching go along a line of thought which is not the type of thinking that we usually do. It, it leaves out all the excess baggage that we carry around in our thinking and comes straight to the absolute point where it's at. And that's why it sounds simplistic and most people never pay attention to it. And being told that they should, they might, and that's why I'm put, putting emphasis on that. They might say, and probably will, yeah, sure, it's okay, mind and body too, okay. And then, of course, there are those, and I have, of course, encountered them innumerable times, who say, oh, but we are one whole. We can't divide ourselves. Then we don't have an inner unity. Well, this is, of course, a, a um, kind of reaction where there's no... Um, discussion because if a person hasn't known yet that they don't have inner unity anyway there's no discussion so that kind of all this kind of thinking comes from excess convolution of the mind making inferences where there are no inferences instead of looking at that what really is so mind and body are two no objections but it's got to be experienced that's the inner realization and that the body is actually nothing but a nuisance. In fact, the Buddha said something very interesting about it. Very interesting. I'm sure um, that when one reads that, everybody sort of gasps a little when they read that. He said, the body doesn't just get cancer. It is a cancer. Now, obviously, cancer was a sickness known in the Buddha's time. There's nothing new. It's just because we have more ways of seeing it with our technology, what it looks like, and have all these ideas what to do about it. We think maybe we've invented cancer, but we haven't. It's always been around. But he said the body doesn't have cancer. It is a cancer altogether. Now, that too needs to be seen, and we'll come to that in a moment. And it is an, a balancing act in order to have a balancing act now first we have this mind and body out then 
we watch the next step is to become aware of arising and ceasing now I've mentioned this many times but again in this context the first thing we know is that the meditation subject arises and ceases obviously the breath arises and ceases now I have said this several times but it is very important to get a good grasp on that so the breath arises and ceases well everybody knows that don't they we inhale and we exhale so it's not really um, impressive however if we watch that with some pinpointed attention that this arising and ceasing of the breath means that there is a constant death happening because there is a moment when there is like a pause between the two anybody can notice that's very easy to notice so there's a constant death and a re-arising of life now we don't feel dead and why is that? because there's continuity anicca, impermanence is clouded over by continuity it keeps on happening again and again and why we don't see that it keeps on happening the same over and over again and don't get bored stiff with it is really amazing because every single day the same thing over and over I think if we had any sense we'd be bored long ago but most people are still trying to find a way out of, out of this tedious arising and ceasing business so this is the thing that we notice with the breath now the next thing that we notice or the same of course with walking meditation we see that the thing goes up and it has to go down I mean it can't stay up it's impossible so whatever comes up has to go down everybody knows this but nobody sees it for what it is that that's all there is because it continues it doesn't get seen so then we see that the mind which is watching this physical business of the breathing of the walking whatever it is has exactly the same quality and not because it gets discursive and goes off on a tangent so that it has ceased to concentrate that's not meant with that if we get really pinpointed with our attention our mindfulness this is then mindfulness we can notice that the mind has the same kind of quality as the breath or even more so namely it comes together and falls apart and comes together and falls apart even while it's watching the breath even while it's watching anything it has this universal aspect of everything now we all know because our scientists told us that the universe is constantly coming together and falling apart contracting and expanding like this well, we are everything that's in the universe is doing exactly the same and we have to notice it within ourselves now watching the mind do that is of course a step into mindfulness which needs more um, pinpointed and more 
exact attention, but it's quite possible to notice it if we put our mind on that. And if we have been told that that's where we should put our mind. You see, in, <clears throat> in our ordinary way of life, we've been told to put on our mind on many things. Maybe we have, we have thought we should put on our mind on making money, looking nice, being friendly, having a holiday. Well, whatever we have put our mind with, we've been told to put our mind on, we have put our mind on it. But here we are told to put our mind somewhere else, and that's why it's possible to do it. Wherever we want to put our mind, we eventually can do it. May in the beginning a little difficult. So that's our next experience, arising and ceasing, covered over by continuity, but when we don't pay attention to continuity, but pay attention to what's really happening, we will notice that there is this person called me which falls apart and comes back together constantly. Now that's a very deep step into insight if we're capable of doing that. And at that time, because it keeps on coming back in coming back together, it doesn't arouse a great deal of objection and resistance. After all, it has fallen apart, but it's all coming back together, so that's okay. So we see arising and ceasing. In whatever, it can be the breath, the body, the movement, it can be the mind state that's watching that, it can be any feeling, any sensation, anything, coming, going, up, down. Right now, having seen that, and that's a very important thing to do, and that's a meditative endeavor, which means that we're doing inside meditation. That's what it means to do vipassana meditation. Most people have this word goes around in the West everywhere from the northern tip of Canada down to the southern tip of Italy everybody's doing Vipassana meditation and nobody knows what it is that's it that's Vipassana trying to find out what we are really made up or what we are consisting of so then this is the second step and then the third step is cause and condition now that's also a very important step. And that attends to the five aggregates. The five, I wish there was a better word for aggregates because nobody really knows what aggregates are until one has talked about it a long time. Five parts of a human being. Pali Khandas, Sanskrit Skandas, English translation aggregates, actually meaning heaps. And because there are five heaps, we think we are one big heap. And we identify with this big heap. And so we have the five heaps. Body and four bits of mind. And the four bits of mind 
are sense contact or sense consciousness rather not sense contact sense consciousness because it's possible to have sense contact and not have sense consciousness for instance a person who is afflicted with leprosy can burn the hand and have no consciousness of that because the nerves are dead so it's sense consciousness and then feeling perception and mental formation four bits of mind so we've got five heaps now the first heaps the body now we need to find out what what is the cause for its being here and what are the conditions to keep it here alive so the cause for it having been born is our craving to be and that in itself should already eliminate the very popular idea that my parents haven't treated me right we picked them if we're so stupid to pick them that's our fault <laughs> and not theirs <laughs> not their fault at all they're the unwilling victims very often <laughs> So this popular notion of trying to go back and seeing what my mother did wrong is absolutely useless. Because this craving to be is our entry into the world. It's not possible for a being to arise without the craving to be. Maybe if you think of a garden and maybe you have if you've ever planted carrots one usually they're very tiny seeds and one usually plants them too close because they're so small they just fall into the ground and you can't make sure that they're enough apart and then what you get very often are a corkscrew carrot two carrots two seeds that have come together they both have to live and so they're winding around each other and then you get this funny looking thing that looks like a corkscrew and they're actually two carrots which were too close together which is a typical uh, aspect of craving to be or you might have seen especially very easy to see at the california coast trees that grow in rocks and you can look at it and think how does this thing grow there isn't a speck of soil there nothing well the craving to grow the craving to be makes it even possible for this tree to grow in the in that crack and a crevice of a of a big rock now, obviously there must be something there somewhere for it to be nourished from but it's not immediately visible so for the body to arise it has to have craving to be otherwise it's not going to get there but its condition that it's that it's its cause now what is the condition for it to stay here well it has to have food and drink and it has to be looked after in certain ways it has to have medicine food drink and rest and if we look at it that way we will see that the food that we put in which is what the condition for its continued life has to be digested and partially expelled 
Otherwise, the thing is also going to collapse. It's going to be sick and die from that. So it has to come in and go out. Now, if we look at our body like that, it will help us again to not have this identification with it, which makes this body so important. It doesn't mean that we should neglect it. Neglecting a body is also, of course, the other side of the coin. It's a hate situation. But seeing it, and you know, this, this hate situation of not looking after the body, people do do that. This, um, what's it called when people don't want, young ladies don't want to eat? Yeah. Well, that's a hate situation. And there are other possibilities, you know, of, of wearing dirty clothes and all that type of thing. And, uh, there's all hate situations. But in order to see ourselves properly, we have to have the balance in the middle and not have this love situation, this infatuation, where we'll do anything to keep this thing alive. Anything at all, including spare parts, which is a, um, a new invention, and of course we can't do it with all our parts, but with some we can, and not only spare parts, but also uh, life support systems, which are um, not even effective. So we'll do anything to keep this body going, anything at all, even keep it going in such a misery that the quality of life is totally impaired and we're only looking for quantity. And the quantity of life is meaningless without the quality of life. So we, what we're supposed to do to see ourselves more clearly is to take away the infatuation, naturally not to arouse the opposite, which is hate, but to have a balanced look at this thing. It came to be because of craving, and it now keeps going because of the necessary input. So we see cause and condition. And the same with the mind. With the mind, it is even more analytical to see it. But it's not supposed to be, but an actual investigation and an experience of how it is, how it works. So there we have our four mental candles, four mental uh, aggregates. And it is very important, and I have already uh, talked about that in another context, but it is again here one of the steps on the way, so it's necessary to reiterate it to watch the sense consciousness which makes everything else appear, which is the cause. Now, for instance, if one is blind, then there's no seeing consciousness, obviously. So there's no reaction to any of the things one can see. So that particular condition cannot arise. Now, we are fortunately not blind, so we must watch what happens. The cause being the consciousness of seeing. Then what happens? All the things that happen afterwards are the conditions of the mind. And again, this is to show us that there isn't any particular being in there that is organizing that all but there is nothing but a process 
progressing from one step to the next. It's a progression of steps which are repeated, 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 again, again, again. And without any particular result. Now if, for instance, the first step is the seeing or the hearing, these are the two strong ones, the seeing and the hearing, amongst the five, there's usually the smelling and the tasting and the touching may not be quite that strong in everyday life, although touching can be very strong, but it isn't that continuous. We usually have seeing and hearing continually. If any of this happens, then we must eventually recognize that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling is there in its wake. Now, neutral feeling is hard to find, but with additional mindfulness and more practice, neutral feeling becomes quite clear. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's okay. That's neutral feeling. It's not so difficult to become aware. It doesn't make an impact because it's uh, mild. Pleasant and unpleasant make impact. They are not mild, they are strong. So then, we must watch the next step, which is the naming, when the mind does actually what it is, uh, its um, main function, the naming, and then the reaction. Now, the same happens with thinking exactly the same and this can be done as a meditative uh, process as a meditation subject for instance in meditation we may not see anything we may not hear anything but we certainly touch this body touches unless we had learned to levitate but I don't know that anybody has actually so we're touching where we're sitting so now, what's the feeling? Maybe in the beginning it's quite neutral and then maybe it becomes unpleasant and then comes the naming the naming, whatever it is if it's unpleasant, it might name it pain if it is still neutral, it might name it all right and then comes the reaction when, the re when it's pain, the reaction might be I can't sit like that or when it's neutral and says it's all right the mind might say, oh, it is good, I can sit like that but we've got to watch that process and know it. Now the same with the thinking process. The thinking, thinking is our sixth sense and also arouses a feeling, which is what we do in the loving-kindness meditation. We use the words immediately with that contact, there is thinking, and then comes feeling, reaction, feeling and the perceiving and then the reaction. So that thinking of the words that we hear will also eventually result in that mental emotional state even if we don't have any feeling at all in the beginning. So thinking creates it too and we need to know this from our own experience. But because we are so used to react immediately without watching the intermediary steps it's difficult 
and therefore it needs to be practiced again and again it's a very interesting thing to do because we can see over and over again how the habit of immediate reaction prevents us from knowing ourselves properly now we can take the Buddha's explanation and try it out the pleasant unpleasant feeling for instance with touch contact is very clear no problem with seeing hearing a little more difficult but can be done now when we use these five heaps five aggregates in that way to see the conditioned mind we will know why the Buddha said we have to know the causes and conditions because our mind is conditioned it doesn't have any any um, jurisdiction over anything it's just a reactor and that's why eventually we can learn to stop our awareness at the sense consciousness and then not have a reaction now only for the purpose of the insight not for the purpose of living out there because if we do that we wouldn't be able to live safely but for the purpose of gaining insight into ourselves we can learn to stop at the sense consciousness and when we do that we will see that we have conditioned mind and that condition is inescapable even though we could stop just by the seeing part or the hearing part that again is condition because we have the senses and they have to function now we can close our eyes and our ears and not be aware of the touch contact smell nothing and taste nothing and get into the meditative part again it's conditioned it's conditioned on concentration so we have to eventually find out that while there are causes for the whole thing happening there's also always a condition which makes it happen now the four mental conditions as a process one makes the next happen that's the conditioning that we have Pachaya and Pali that's the conditioning and the condition without which there is no human life this is what it's all about but as we see that it will eventually and that's the whole um, purpose of this exercise it will eventually show us that there's no value in it it's just repetitive again and again it doesn't have that intrinsic value that we put to the human life as being the um, epitome of uh, creation because we can think it isn't that at all that too is conditioned so when we see that that hasn't such an enormous value we get a little bit of our infatuation away with life and what it can offer us this infatuation is our um, 
reason for wanting and for not wanting. So this cause and condition needs to be investigated and seen as the way everything exists. Now when we become mindful of ourselves, we will eventually also have this ability to watch all this arising and ceasing outside of ourselves. And that's very important to have internal and external mindfulness. Now, of course, we are, have more, maybe dislike, of the fact that we are so impermanent and no dislike of the fact that the tree is impermanent. But that's neither here nor there. That's not what it's all about. What it is all about is to see it in oneself and by seeing it in everything around one to recognizing the fact that existence is like that. There is no difference. That is existence, arising and ceasing, cause and condition. Now the conditions for the tree are obviously there's nourishment in the soil, he's got to have that so that makes a sap rise and the, uh, the cause for it is the seed that I was talking about, the carrot that has the craving to be. We can see that in ourselves and outside of ourselves. And when we do, we get a different slant on things. It means that we can, first of all, have a slant on, on the whole aspect of existence which isn't so much imbued as what we want, but it's more imbued with how to understand it better and if we want to make any value of it and have anything in it that can be of any value, that's not what we want, but what we want to give. So even those understanding the beginnings of these insights already change one's attitude quite markedly, but only if one has seen them in oneself to the point of realization of them. The realization which means that there's this inner acceptance and this inner recognition where the mind says, aha, that's what it is. I can see it now. Because we have always known that we're going to die. And we've always known that you have to inhale and exhale. So what's new about that? And we have also always known that we have to eat and digest and excrete nothing new in any of that so that's not an inner realization these are just facts of life which we could conveniently like to forget but when it becomes an inner realization when we see ourselves as this changeable and changing and conditioned process or human being and then see the same thing outside of ourselves there's a totally different um, feeling about oneself it isn't so terribly personal and subjective and when it isn't so terribly personal and subjective then it isn't so important what one gets now after that after that third one comes the fourth one 
and I will explain the fourth one and that will be enough for one go we'll do the other ones at another time the fourth one again is a meditative process and it ha- that happens with, can only happen in meditation really because the mind just isn't pointed enough outside of meditation now mindfulness can be outside of meditation but the one pointedness is in meditation <coughs> and what we experience after having become aware of the arising and ceasing of breath, of mind, of feeling, of thought, of all that, we now experience in the meditation the dissolution, how it dissolves. And the mind then knows at that point that everything gets transformed. Now, for instance, this transformation which happens, in everything is already the impermanence but it's only a mild part of it so transformation for instance is that this body goes back to earth becomes dust transformation that a beautiful flower goes on the compost heap and becomes compost that's transformation the impress transforms into the outbreath. The continuity is this transformation. That we transform our sense consciousness into feeling, into perception, into mental formation. This is a transformation. And because of this continuity which happens in that transformation, we are incapable of seeing the moment-to-moment death aspect and we're quite happy and I've heard it actually taught as Buddhism with this transformation or read it maybe yes I think I've read it Um, we are quite sufficiently satisfied with this transformation because it gives us a sense of continuity we don't really want to disappear but of course that's not the way it is at all because everything that has been transformed has disappeared it's gone that it now has become something else that's a new thing that has happened that again will be transformed but because it happens so quickly in our own mind and body it overshadows the dissolving aspect and that is the next thing that we will see after we have come to terms with the fact that that what is being transformed has actually disappeared now that dissolution is a disintegration it disintegrates and because it does that it is destruction this body is going to be completely destroyed one day but it's constantly being destroyed the in-breath is destroyed to make it an out-breath the thought process is destroyed to make a new one come the sensations of feeling everything is destroyed in order to get something new and this destruction is actually the the overall picture and very well expressed 
in some of the symbolism of Hinduism where the same God figure is the God of creation and destruction which is the transformation it comes and it goes and now if we put ourselves into that process and see it and see the destruction then we have gained an enormous insight and what happens after that I think I will tell you tonight because that's enough what I'd like you to do is to practice what I have been preaching practice what one preaches first thing is where's me find it go out and sit somewhere and find me I mean, you're constantly concerned with me everybody is constantly concerned so where is it let's find it once and for all and say I found it and if you do you let me know about it huh? that you found me I mean your own me not my me and then after having done that then become very much aware of the distinction between mind and body and actually practice make it happen this distinction and then having made that happen then become very much aware of the arising and ceasing of whatever you like to put your mind on any part of yourself and then the conditions which make things arise and cease how this works all the time the cause and condition it's called these are um, traditional terminology which of course need explaining but that's the, the way they've been translated and then having seen this cause and condition then see the transformation in it all and from the transformation you might come to the dissolution dissolving destruction and if you do or only even one step it doesn't matter I've just enumerated them again to reiterate it doesn't matter how many steps one takes on this path any one step makes a difference any one of them one doesn't have to see it all all at once and then of course make that information personal knowledge and from personal knowledge make it personal experience however much or however little doesn't matter any part of it so now we can ask some questions if you have thought of any and also if you ever want to be reborn intelligent you have to ask a lot of questions so it says anyway <laughs> understood experience on two levels the, in, the intellectual, intellectual understanding that um, when we see the desire and know the dukkha as the intellectual understanding mm-hmm. and on the other hand the deep insight which only arises after the jhana because well yeah well but the words in understood experience indicates that we have the experience first and then understand it 
So that is already that insight which changes everything. Now, after jhana is the best time to do it because the mind is so clear and so unimpeded and it's imperturbable, the Buddha said, at least for a little while. So it can actually see more things more clearly. However, these steps here that I've talked about, um, well, they are not necessarily only possible without the jhanas, uh, with the jhanas, because now having set several days and having had a quiet surrounding, the mind should already be much quieter than it usually is. Of course, if one first does jhana and then that, it's easier. It's much easier. But if one doesn't do jhana and only that, that's all right too. It's okay. Because the words understood experience indicates that one has the experience of desire and the experience of dukkha and knows that both belong together. So one has understood them. So the intellectual understanding, certainly, that's the knowledge part. You know, that's, that's, a, that's an intellectual understanding where the mind agrees. It agrees to the fact that, yes, desire makes dukkha. It's agreeable. And sometimes minds are very agreeable and don't, don't want to try it out. And some minds are very disagreeable and don't want to try it out either. <laughs> Once Prakantipada uh, said that deep inside only comes when um, when one's a stream enterer. Yeah, I know you've mentioned that. Um, well, fancy that actually, because how are you going to get to be a stream enterer? You got to have a bit of insight for that too, you know. So I mean, it's a catch twenty-two, isn't it? You've got to get inside in order to become a stream enter. You've got to know all those, no, not know. You've got to experience at least this much, if not more, in order to even want to become a stream enter. I mean, who wants to be a stream enter? Nobody ever, ever heard of it, you know. So what for? No, um, no, it sounds a little bit like the grapes are too sour. You've got to have, you've got to have, you need insight to become a stream enter. Mm-hmm. So, um, naturally, the more you have already developed your purity, the easier it is to get insights. And that's why it is said that the stream enter can only live another seven lives in all this um, um, ignorance. But uh, a puttajana, a worldling, who knows? You know? So it's much easier, yes. Maybe one should say it's much easier to gain insight once you become a stream enter. That would be probably the correct statement. So, what else? Yes. My answer question is to. Uh, because in the meditation before your talk, I was focusing on something that I think pertains to the talk, and I just wanted to see if I could be, while it's still fresh in my mind, just get it into perspective. Um, because I tend, or have, I have, yes, I think I have a tendency to smile when I have a feeling of joy, I'd mostly associated 
but I'm quite sure I'd always associated the feeling of joy as being somewhere in the head. It's always been there for me. And that probably seems very strange to everybody else. Um, but for whatever reason, I started to look because I was trying to differentiate between the actual feeling of joy and love and see whether they were different and how they felt different. And I had a very peculiar thing happen. I discovered when I looked very closely that the feeling was no longer in the head, that it had moved down into an area down here. <laughs> and even though I still could no longer tell the difference between joy and love, um, it became very profound, the fact that the movement had taken place from the head down to the lower part. And it was quite confusing for me because, because I'd been used to associating joy as being up in the head. I then had to completely reorient myself because now being down below in the heart. <laughs> well, I'm glad it went down there because that's where it belongs. <laughs> um, Yes, it's very common. In fact, I think everybody does in the second jhana think that they're smiling. And uh, one would swear one is smiling. One isn't actually. But what actually happens is that the facial muscles, the whole musculature of the whole body relaxes to such an extent that one actually has that. One would guarantee that one is smiling. But it, it's rare most people just have a completely relaxed face and that's a reaction to the emotion because happiness makes one smile and we do that in everyday life too not just in the jhana so that is normal and it, the reason you were probably thinking what was up here was because you were the observer of it all and you didn't actually really fall into it as a complete participant and now you did and now it was where it belongs it belongs right here this is supposed to be the spiritual heart right here and this is where the joy is felt and this is another um, maybe we could call it a trick of the trade um, if one has the first jhana if one is uh, already that far anyway and doesn't quite know how to get to the second one because that, it shouldn't be difficult, but it can be helpful to actually go down here with one's attention. And this is where it's all sitting. This is really where one feels it. Um, the body is uh, sort of like a like an vessel where these things can be found. And that's why also the first four jhanas are called the rupa jhanas, which means the fine material meditative absorptions. Long. English words and then the next four are the ah-rupa non-material where this even that faint body consciousness has uh, evaporated so getting down in here is the right place for it and the distinction between joy and love is um, a mind-made uh, distinction because even the words that we're using are all, yeah, well, they are helpful, but they're concepts. They make a thing static. Because the word is being put there and so it is, right? But the feeling is not so it is. The feeling has movement in it. 
and so it can actually go to a feeling of all-pervading love it can go to a feeling of all-pervading joy and it may start as a tiny little bit of joy it may start as this or that but the words are putting it into a context of so that is it um, the love that is being felt at that time is non-directional it is this joyous warmth which one associates with a feeling of love so all these are our uh, conditioned mind saying it but we need something otherwise we can't discuss anything otherwise we just sit here and hope for the best so um, I'm very glad it went down there well it was quite relieving that what you said is absolutely true it was very useful as it turned out for me to be looking at the distinction between the two because that's what I think led to it because I wouldn't have looked so closely Mm-hmm. Ah, to find out the distinction mm-hmm. yeah. ah, well, but it's good because it's, it went much deeper than usual didn't it mm. very good so anything else interesting yes uh, when you meditate on the death on the death it's easy to see that the body disintegrates and becomes dust but uh, it's difficult to see what the mind Mm. well the mind you have to uh, find well it's your own investigation of course you know I mean the uh, the understanding of mind has to be seen what is left then and as you see it you probably then decide well that's me you know but are you ever going to be there again with what you think is me I mean, if the body has disappeared into dust and you think the mind is going to stay, then you make up your mind that mind is me. And then you have to investigate that. Whether that's really so. So if that was so, it would have been so last time. Do you know anything about the last me? Before this one? So what happened? What happened to the mind last time? Where is it? What's happened? I mean, you only know this one, don't you? This, this me. So, what happened to the last one? How did it, how did it disappear? Or what did it do? I mean, it certainly can't be me because otherwise you'd be knowing something about it. Or maybe it's me and you've forgotten me. So, the question remains: What is it? that is called me because uh, you have this experience of people dying and coming to life again near death experience the near death experience yes well but they weren't dead they were near dead the the, the NDE the near death experience oh well they weren't dead they remember because they, they, they they were not totally they were maybe thought to be dead but they weren't so that isn't the same thing really being dead and al- almost being dead is not quite the same thing but you can investigate so if you give up the idea that I'm the body and give it up and not just by intellectual reasoning but by personal uh, experience of that there can't be anything in there then investigate the mind and see what could possibly go on there and see whether that's me 
we will definitely come to the understanding eventually what is happening so it's all goes step by step little by little anything else